0: The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of PlanetPod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, who published the iconic Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity what better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize. This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two short lists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. Native, Life in a Vanishing Landscape by Patrick Laurie tells the story of Patrick's return to his homeland to establish a herd of cattle on the hills above the Solway Firth and he encounters the final passing of ancient rural heritage. His book confronts relentless and accelerating change, exploring the enduring connection between humans, farming, and nature in a poignant and hopeful record of life in a vanishing landscape. Patrick, welcome to Planet Pod and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, nice to be here.
0: It's obviously a huge journey that you've been on going back back to your to your native roots to to take up farming or perhaps retake up farming, perhaps I should say, but I wonder if you could sketch out for listeners how the book came about because you have been a writer for a while oh this is your first formal book, isn't it? I know you've written a, a monograph and lots of blogs, but how did the the book come into being
1: um the book was a long time coming. As you say, this has been uh, probably best part of 10 years' worth of working in this area. I was born and brought up in, in Galloway and lived here for, for 20 years and then was away to university. And when I came back, I was really keen to try and fit in somewhere. Um, and so I was... I was always very determined that I should live in Galloway, but it's not—it's not a very easy place to make a living. It's not—it's not an awful lot of options for young people. So, I sort of fished about looking for looking for options, looking for looking for a bit of a niche. And and one thing Galloway has traditionally done very well, and, and my family aligned with that through many generations, has been farming. Um. So yeah, I began to write about the experience of farming in a sort of in a blog format. Lots of little episodes, little sort of vignettes, little uh, notes and diary entries, and uh, my blog in due course became a big sort of scrapbook of things that appeared um, and disappeared, Um, but I never really had a narrative to pin it all together until relatively recently when I started to think, actually, a lot of this stuff does fit. It's simply a matter of of, of finding an order, finding a structure to hang it on. Um, So sort of from that, uh, the the book emerged, Um, and actually the book... I, when I first sort of took it to an agent and took it to a publisher um the book really was in pieces. it was in just a few fragments and it was it it was only really in the writing that it started to happen and probably even in the last week before it was submitted for the manuscript submission um was when it actually became what it what it ended up being until that stage, it was very similar, but the last week ended up being a complete rewrite and a cre- a complete reimagining of the entire thing so um, it, uh, yeah that was quite a frantic week.
0: Um <laughs> nothing like cutting it fine. And 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 how much of the the how much of is it evoking the life of the of farming or how much is it more about the 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 general life of the landscape? Because because I mean are you make managing to make a living keeping your 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 herd of cattle or are they part of a patchwork of things that you do?
1: So I do I do lots of things um to do with conservation in Scotland, um to do with land management in Scotland. Um, and I suppose probably I was what really kickstarted the book was, um, yeah, five, six, seven years ago. I was involved in a project which was trying to reconcile some issues around uh, conflict in conservation. A lot of big disagreements around how we should go forward with conservation issues in Scotland, and particularly given I've got a background in gamekeeping and, and field sports, um, trying to reconcile some of the di- some of the difficulties and issues that people have around um, around shooting, some aspects of of, of game management. Uh, the sustainability of of, of, of field sports. Um, there was a really interesting reconciliation project which came out that said, um, effectively, on one hand, we've got the science, which tells us to do one thing, and we've got people on the ground who are telling us something slightly different. And rather than sort of perpetuating a conflict between the two, um, how do we effectively recognise that both have value? And in in starting to unpack aspects of local knowledge, the value of local knowledge, and starting to get um finding ways to make sure everybody's engaged with the science because we've come up with some fantastic science but unless anybody's actually delivering it on the ground it becomes um it, it really becomes sort of pie in the sky what what the scientists are saying to us yeah that then really started to unpick a lot of the stuff that i was doing when i was getting involved with farming and, and looking around me and realizing that this is a landscape with huge conservation challenges here in galloway um in in the southwest of scotland and actually not the there there were some really good examples of failure to failure to communicate failure to recognize kind of local knowledge local wisdom, but also failure to recognize some of the even simple science that was coming out to explain some of these problems so I think probably to go back to your question, sitting across um lots of different roles in my working life um i don't know I think I probably had quite a quite a useful perspective in terms of seeing. It, from a government strategy, from a from a conservation, uh, government level conservation strategy, right down to actually going out in the morning to feed cows. And I was particularly interested in wading birds and curlews, actually seeing the birds on their breeding grounds day by day as I was going about my work. So I like to think that the book, the book sort of came about from a variety of different approaches towards the same kind of subject.
0: And you talk about that potential conflict between those who, live and work on the land and have done for generations and and scientists and inverted commas is that something that you think is is resolving i mean it's interesting that you that use the word reconciliation which is something we usually put against against quite serious conflicts that involve life and death issues so so is it changing because we hear a lot about um the drive for rewilding, different uses of the land, different forms of land management. Are, are, are the two sides coming to, to a, a, a place of, of harmony, if I can put it like that?
1: Um, I think that they are. I think there's a huge amount to be optimistic about and a huge amount to be really positive about, but I don't think that it's very well represented. So I think sort of behind the scenes, some really good stuff's going on, but when you look around and the way a lot of these conflicts um, Away, a lot of this sort of hostility is being expressed um, in the media on social media. it seems very divisive seems very gloomy and very sort of upsetting and uh, How can we go on in this vein? but actually, when you get out and speak to people on the ground and i 've been particularly the last um, three or four years i 've been doing uh, advisory work consultation work with with a number of, of big grouse malls in the south of Scotland. Um, they're, they're really up for big aspects of, of, of rewilding. They're really very conscious of their obligation towards um, conservation issues. And they're looking at um, ecosystem services, they're looking at water quality, they're looking at carbon sequestration. I mean, these just aren't, it's not catchy. It's not, it's not, it's not like a glib headline that, that'll stir people into action. Um, actually, what's frustrating is good news doesn't really sell. And I think um, we're, we're quite often keen to look at the, the gloomy side of this. I've actually even this week been dealing with people who are looking for more information on on, on peatland restoration, um, and and they wouldn't have been doing that ten years ago. So so it is working. We are moving forward, but yeah, I think we've come out of some really dark places. And I don't think reconciliation is, is used lightly. I think um, where we were five ten years ago, um, things looked really jagged and and very difficult. And I think yeah, I think I think. Things things are improving.
0: That's really encouraging to hear because we 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 talk about these issues quite a lot on, on on Planet Pod. So, it's really encouraging to hear that someone who's on the ground and embedded in the community can get you know can actually get to the heart of the matter and share that with people so so that's thank you for that that's that's helpful i i wonder if you can tell me about how you think your book fits in perhaps the wider conservation the global conservation movement because it could easily be a, a book that could have been on either of these short lists um couldn't it really so how do you what do you feel the where do you feel its places in terms of of contributing to to the wider narrative
1: oh, i feel it's tricky because um, I started off with quite a clear idea of what I thought I wanted to write with the book and latterly it began to touch on a whole range of other issues Um, and so I could answer your question probably in five or six different ways. I think probably one of the main things that, that, that continually interests me about the book and about the project in a broader sense in terms of rearing cattle, in terms of conservation grazing, um, and sustainable land management. It's about reconciling space for nature, space for conservation in food production, because uh, global demands for food production are just such a driver behind so much that we've lost so far. And yet, in so many ways, it 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 just needn't have been like this. And actually, the evidence we've got seems to suggest that um, we don't we don't we don't have to suffer this. The the situation we're in at the moment isn't inevitable. It's simply a matter of working, uh, understanding where we're at, understanding how we've got there, and understanding a way forward. And I'm quite cautious too. a lot of the stuff that I've been doing, um, which is documented in the book um, to do with uh, farming for conservation. Um, I'm quite cautious not to be held as, as an example. I don't necessarily, what I've done is not necessarily trying to say here's how everybody should do it. Cause I understand the limitations of my system are inherently small, not terribly productive working on um, very sensitive uh, conservation areas. i you couldn't feed the world on the basis of what i'm trying to do but at the same time there are skills and mindsets and approaches towards land management which you get on this kind of marginal country which i think don't necessarily serve as the blueprint but they they are part of the conversation and i think it's useful to keep some of these ideas sort of to the fore at this this stage and what's really interesting too is big commercial farmers galloway Uh, Galloway's kind of diverged, having always been a very, very old-fashioned part of of the southwest of Scotland. We've diverged over the last 30, 40 years to go into very, very intensive commercial softwood forestry, which has had a huge negative impact on on our biodiversity here, Um, and also gone into um, very intensive dairy production. So Galloway, being a small area of Scotland, produces over half of Scotland's milk. with that's also come at a huge cost to biodiversity uh, uh, and a huge cost of of sustainability of local land management but what i'm doing here is kind of based on a 1950s 1960s model which a lot of the people who are driving these changes still remember so i'm not necessarily reinventing the wheel all i'm all i'm doing is just slightly in a way and this also sounds grandiose as if i have aspirations to, to to change the world i just i it's been really useful to be able just to twitch the thread sometimes and remind people where they started and remind people how uh, fine, we're making terrific progress now with uh, our productivity on for timber and, and, and dairy, but let's not forget that it really wasn't that long ago when we were doing stuff um, with a sort of a 2 far a plow and, and working very slowly with a lot more people on the ground, a lot more people much more engaged to the landscape, uh, wildlife booming in these places. Um, so I think probably there is value in 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 just keeping this kind of work ticking over I
0: would say there's huge value in that and I think that you know the whole food production debate is is one where where a lot of the problem lies with overproduction and waste um both in the field and in the in the supermarket not you know and and at home in in kitchens and things so actually we could produce food very differently in a slower and more um landscape friendly um, land friendly way and still manage to feed ourselves so it's I think you've touched on a, a really strong element of that you know the need to, to listen to the land and and I'm wondering and that kind of feeds into my next question really because I was going to ask you how much of your kind of lived experience um, relates to your writing and how how you how you blend the two and it sounds as if what you're doing day to day is reflected in 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 the book that you've written
1: yeah, I, I, I think it probably is, and I've been quite careful too not to be to make sure that the book ends up being a bit messy and a bit wrong and a bit scruffy, um, because I was very keen that it should reflect the kind of conversations I've been having over the last sort of um, ten or twelve years. So um, I've tried to make space in the book for um, a lot of sort of oral history, a lot of I've, I mean being of I am an incredibly inefficient writer, I produced this is seventy five thousand words long this book cut down from three hundred and fifty thousand words. Um, so um, one of the ways in which I was able to pull out a huge amount of um, sort of material, extra stuff from the book to to get to that deadline, to get to that 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 finish point was um, to find other ways of communicating that same that same information. and in terms of tone and in terms of language, um, I find it that when I say that the book was rewritten in the last week before it was submitted, um, that process was simply picking a different and more approachable more oral more fluid narrative voice um, which it was rather than rather than let me tell you what i 'm trying to communicate um, you 'll be able to hear it in amongst uh, a narrative voice which really kind of embraces an entire character, what I was hoping would be an entire character, an entire approach. So as I say, there's, there, are, there are fluffs and mistakes and stuff in there which you could go through and say, well, that's wrong. That happened on a different year. But actual fact, I felt it was more important and more in keeping with the tone and the language and the nature of the project. It was more accurate to be wrong, if that, if that makes sense. Um, and so the day-to-day lived experience, of actually working on the farm is being surrounded by people who, and I think I said in the in the afterwards of the book that if enough people say something about themselves for long enough, then it in itself becomes something worth listening to, irrespective of whether it's right or wrong. Um, and I think that's quite an important thing for, for Galloway. I still get now, even today, since the 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 shortlist has been announced today, um, ex- telling people that I've written uh, a book about Galloway, people say, Oh, I love Ireland. I have to say, well, actually, Galloway, Galloway you'll think maybe thinking of Galway, Galloway's in Scotland. And and this, this is, it's really hard to emphasise. This, this is, this is, this is an incredibly overlooked, underexplored part of Scotland, a place that's never really had a voice, a place that's never really been set down on paper. Um,
0: yeah, so, you say uh, it's uh, fallen off the map. It's clearly fallen off the map onto somebody else's map as well, hasn't
1: it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but it's, 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 it's wildly obscure and yet at the same time it's always been my absolute absolute center and and I suppose probably when I start set off to write the book I had quite a clear idea I wanted to write a book about curlews and then I wanted to write a book about farming in curlews and then I wanted to write a book about farming in Galloway with curlews and latterly, the whole the, the book kind of just sprawled across what I hope is 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 lots of different angles lots of different subjects um but to me it was the first and foremost was the really important thing of trying to capture something of that character that relationship between human beings and and a place and their sense of place and and, and, as I say being slightly flabby and scruffy with how that was presented seemed to be in keeping much more certainly seemed to be much more in keeping with the nature of the place and if I had simply said Galloway is a scruffy sort of fluffy sort of a place Um, (laughs) let me show you rather than tell you
0: would you be able to 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 show us now is there a passage that kind of encapsulates the book that you feel would be appropriate to share with listeners and and if so would you be happy to read it
1: for us um yes there is i was besotted with birds curlews were my focus but i'd often get up before dawn to watch black grouse and lapwings displaying in the rushes above the hill pens i'm glad i made the time for those birds because they've all gone now I knew the last black grouse by name, and I was there to see the final lapwings egg. Curlews are the last of a grand dynasty of hill birds which has crumbled into ash during the short course of my life. My generation has arrived at the party which seems to be ending, and it's getting harder to recall birds as they were in the days of their plenty. People often say that agriculture has driven this collapse. There's a long-running conflict between conservationists and farmers, and I was caught with a foot in both camps. Birdwatchers say that farmers don't give a damn about wildlife but I couldn't square that with what I saw at home. My love of nature had always been egged on by my parents who nudged and fired me up with their own stories and tales. My father used to bring me small treasures he'd found on the farm. I had an owl feather and a snake skin on my bedside table. I was devoted to a dead mole which I carried everywhere in my jacket pocket for two weeks. I loved him or her with a desperate intensity but this divine jewel went missing in mysterious circumstances. It took almost 20 years for me to realize that my parents had thrown the corpse away when it finally sprung a leak and began to melt.
0: Messy indeed, but absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Patrick. That was really, really wonderful. And I now have this image of you as a little boy with all these treasures on your bedside table. It's simply wonderful. Uh, um, I have to ask, and you've talked about the the, the messiness of the book, which I love because for me, most real farms are a bit messy around the edges. Um, Where do you do your writing? I mean, do you manage to snatch moments during the day in between activities or do you write late at night, you know, curled up in a chair? Where's your kind of writing place?
1: I have a um I have an office where I do uh, most of my stuff through the day but I tend to write late night in, in in the office I'm very fortunate to have a big window outside the office um and it says something about Galloway that I can see even as I look up just now from speaking to you I can see about 8 miles um and I can't see any houses any roads any at nighttime there's no lights there's no nothing it's just beautiful dark skies um And I've had a barn owl's nest in the shed just next to my office window. So at night time, when I'm writing at the moment, there's just a constant hissing, um, which was brilliant when it first started. And I must say, it sounds very ungrateful, but it's getting a bit tedious now. (laughs)
0: Oh Well, it sounds heaven, but, you know, maybe some of some of the remoteness might be a curse as well as a blessing. I think fascinating you say that, because one of the things that those of us who have to live in more urban environments noticed during lockdown, of course, was was, was the quiet and our ability to reconnect with the world around us. Um, and, and that's something that I know a lot of us really treasured. And it certainly helped people get through lockdown, being able to hear birds they didn't normally hear and and, and see things they couldn't normally see because of the pollution. So so thank you for sharing that. Um, I wonder if, you know, as, as we come to a close, if there's something that you feel that you'd like to ask of listeners is there a kind of call to action coming out of your book or out of the work that you do that you'd like people to take on board as a result of of listening to this podcast other of course than buying the book which everyone must do but generally is there a kind of call to
1: action um there's no uh, there's no call to action in the book um necessarily and i think probably that in itself is a bit of a statement because um Looking at the decline of the birds, I'm really interested in here, and looking at the direction of travel um, for the landscape that I was brought up in, and and, and absolutely love. Um, it doesn't look good. We're on a we're on a trajectory here, a local trajectory here, where where um, huge areas are being developed, as I say, back into these um, commercial software plantations. A lot of the um, low ground is changing and becoming more intensively managed all the time. Um, for for a very long time i was almost inconsolably upset at what was happening here um and i found it very difficult very very oppressive very difficult to deal with on a day to day basis and i think probably what the book says is in in a way is that change changes is, is sort of baked into a lot of these landscapes and that um fretting and worrying and 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 kind of wringing your hands, because actually I, you, we generally are, are powerless to resist a lot of these these big commercial industrial changes at the moment. Um fine, maybe more so in some areas than others, but I suppose in Galloway particularly, having been confronted with something that was unalterable, um, the difficulty is too big, too dramatic, and it's coming already, it's already it's already on its way. Um, I suppose probably looking at um these kind of issues from the perspective of change change is inevitable change is always coming and actually what what really are we looking at when we're in the natural world because change has been here since the ice age the landscape's always moving on and actually what we accept today do we are we desperately concerned to preserve things as they are and what do we keep when we know that change is coming and and what can we afford to lose and so i suppose when we talk about a call to action i would love to be able to say sign this petition or get involved with this movement or wear this badge I suppose part of me thinks that that the book the book is more an attempt to make peace with change and and, and yeah fine I refuse to make peace with some aspects of change when it comes to, to to issues around climate change when it comes to issues around stuff that we can very easily sort but but I think it, in more general terms landscapes and places and nature is inherently changing and I think the book in some ways is is a discussion is a discussion around that and I suppose probably I would just be cautious to draw draw lines around what we can fix and what we can't fix and, and, and maybe maybe take some sort of philosophical comfort from that.
0: That in itself is a call, isn't it? It's a call to learn to live with the things that that we can't change about our landscape and to embrace them. Actually, yeah. and that cool, and it's if you like, it's a it's a, a request for harmony. So, um, so thank you, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. We wish you huge luck with the prize. Thank you very much. I um, mean, it's been an absolutely lovely talking to you, and um, I know that Jim and I are deeply envious of you in your southwest corner of Scotland <laughs> with your barn house. So, so a huge thank you to you. Um, You've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. Native, Life in a Vanishing Landscape is published by Burling, and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website and on our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can find an extract from the book and subscribe to other episodes of Planet Pod. Thank you for listening, and do go out and buy the book, everyone. listening to the stories behind the books the planet pod series on the wainwright prize 2020 you can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the wainwright prize website or on our planet pod website do look them up and find out more thanks for listening